Oh, I could talk for two weeks, fortunately for you I won't, <laughs> about my trip to Alaska. It was something I'd always wanted to do, and the older I get, the more I realize travel is what I want to do till I drop dead. <laughs> and I feel very fortunate that I got to take this trip in July. I'd always thought that perhaps I'd take an Alaskan cruise, and once I did this trip, I realized a cruise simply wouldn't have done it for me. I had heard Jeannie speak in church briefly a few years ago. What year did you go, Jeannie? I forget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jeannie talked about the Whale Coast Alaska tour to Alaska. And so I kind of had that tucked in the back of my mind, and I was putting my pennies in the bank and putting my pennies in the bank. And then I looked it up on the Internet, and I decided life is getting shorter. Do it now. Carpe diem, and diem, and diem, and diem. So I want to tell you a little bit about Whale Coast, Alaska, so that you, you have some sort of historical context. It was founded by Reverend Dick Weston, who was the minister with the Ventura UU Church. Oh, by the way, I don't know if, if you mentioned it, but the book by Rachel Carson, she happens to be a UU. I, I, I was curious and looked it up. The first year for Whale Coast was 1992, a year after Reverend Weston started his ministry with the Ventura UU Church. Originally, he suggested the idea as a fundraiser for the Ventura Church budget since Ventura was on the California coast. And I know our congregation, members of our congregation, have led trips to various places to raise funds for this church. So this group ran weekend programs from Ventura which is a long way from Alaska, out to hike on the Channel Islands and to whale watch offshore between Ventura and Santa Barbara, hence the name Whale Coast. They announced the programs to UU churches all over the UU, US and Canada through stories sent to the newsletters and through small ads in the UU World magazine. In fact, if you turn in your UU World magazine any month that it comes to, in the back, where they list bed and breakfast and all those trips. Well, this Whale Coast tour is back there. You can find out all about it. They invited congregations up and down the California coast to join in the tour, and those in Long Beach, Palos Verdes, Goleta, <laughs> San Luis Obispo, and Monterey joined Ventura for two or three years. And then Reverend Weston and his wife led Whale Coast tours in California, Alaska, and Mexico during their summer vacations because you can whale watch up and down the, the coast. The first tour to Southeast Alaska was, was held in 1993, and Sitka was the first UU congregation, Alaska UU congregation to participate, followed by Juneau, Anchorage, and Fairbanks. They also included various other Alaska communities, communities that did not have UU congregations. After the 2007 tour program, Reverend Weston and his wife retired from the tour directorship, and Dave Frey, a Fairbanks UU, had, who had been the Fairbanks coordinator for the tour for many years, took over as director of the whole tour program. He remains the tour director to this day. 
Over the past two and a half decades, the Whale Coast Alaska Tour has raised over $430,000 for its UU congregations, the congregations in Fairbanks, Anchorage, Juneau, and Sitka. Over 1,000 deaths, proudly including Jeannie and I, we have participated, visited Alaska through the program. So it was, it, it was actually in 2015, just this last year, that I took that tour. I, when putting it in the newsletter, I said it was in 2014, but time passes quickly when you're having fun is what I realized. And so it was actually last July I signed up for the two-week tour, which tours all four of those areas. And I kept thinking, man, I'd like to go back. Man, I'd like to go back. Man, I'd like to go back. And then this year I heard that they were adding, as they do occasionally, the one-week tour in June to go to Seward. So I'm going. Oh. <laughs> I sure am. Uh, I have never seen anything like it. I, I mean, I, I watch all those travel programs, and I read National Geographic, and I've read books on Alaska. And I had no idea the, the beauty of the place es escapes description, really. Uh, we have mountains here. They have mountains in spades. Denali. I forget how high Denali is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Morris Farr has actually climbed Denali or part of it because he's, in his younger, more fit days, he was a mountain climber. And I, I would love to hear him tell us someday of climbing Denali. The, our tour, the one that I was on, there were 40 of us. I was not the oldest person on it. <laughs> Getting there, I may be the oldest this next time around. There were 40 people ranging in age from 14 to 80-something, 80 82. I was the only one from Arizona. And uh, there were two teenagers on there, uh, sisters, one 14 and one 19, and they were with their parents who were from, from California. The 14-year-old was on her iPhone most of the time. <laughs> she missed a whole heck of a lot of scenery because she's sitting, and we took part of the tour goes from, from Fairbanks over to Denali on the, um, on the Alaska Railroad. And my goodness, if you've never been on the Alaska Railroad, how many people in this room have been to Alaska? Oh my gosh, so you, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, about how beautiful it is. The, tra the train from Fairbanks to Anchorage, and I forget where in that enormous area Denali is, actually, but we st stayed overnight in Denali National Park, two nights in their cabins, and just really, it was just enjoyable. We, saw, we went to the museums there, some of the museums are interactive. They have the native people there that do an interactive village. And then we took, uh, got into a tour van in Denali Park, and we're going out to see Denali, the reason why we were there. I think in the native language it means the great one, and when we saw it, we realized why the native people call it that. But the tour director had warned us, don't be disappointed if you don't see it. It's visible only 30 to 40% of the year, and I am telling you it was visible from a long way off, clear as a bell. Never seen anything like it. After the service, I've got a table set up out there with um, my laptop computer, and I'll turn on the video for you because we contributed photos from our trip, and they compiled selections of those. 
and set it to music. There is a musician that's a member of the Fairbanks congregation by the name, uh, her last name is Grace, fittingly enough, Sandy or Susan Grace, I think. She's a songwriter, a composer and songwriter and singer, and she composed the music that's on the video. And so it's just, it's just lovely. So the, I could talk about it a long time about what it was like, but really what, what impressed me, and part of the reason, and part of my, my intent in going was knowing that climate change, we see it here, you see it in spades in a place like Alaska, because one of the, one of the days we took a boat out to, it's called the Tracy Arm Tour Boat, and you go out to the Stewart Glacier, I think it's the Stewart Glacier. Saw so many things in so many places, I forget it all. But while we were out by the glacier, which is as blue as turquoise, that ice, you know, the, the, for whatever reason, the reflection and the way ice is composed, I'm not a scientist. Lou back there would probably know exactly what goes on with, with ice. But it is blue. It's kind of like this blue, a little paler than this, this blue when you're... You take this boat and you come up fairly close to the glacier. In the meantime, there, there are ice flows around and seals are laying on them and bears are going along the side of the fjord. And then you come upon this glacier which towers over you as you're down here in the boat. And there's this huge blue cliff. And on one end, water is pouring out because it's in July after all, but it's pouring out faster and faster these days because of because of climate change. And as we were watching and with our mouths wide open as I drool watching all this, all this stuff, down, way down here, thankfully, comes this loud boom and this big piece of ice broke off and waves come up to the boat and I'm singing this theme song from Titanic, you know. <laughs> but it, it was just astonishing. But there, there was examples of climate change warming. It's summer after all, you expect that kind of thing to happen anyway. But the tour director talked about the speed at which the glaciers are melting and receding and what it's doing to the animals and about how in the, in the middle of summer when the bears are going along filling up with whatever they can catch, their picky little appetites, picking which salmon to eat, standing, you know, walking along the river, scooping up what they call soap berries. They said humans wouldn't eat them, bears would, but I think bears will eat anything as they're preparing to hibernate. But to see, see, see the <coughs> bears so thin as they're trying to fatten up, and some years less and less food for them to do just that. And the tour director said that they found evidence of bears that, are, that die while they're hibernating because they don't have enough fat on them. So I wanted to see some of this. I mean, I didn't think it was going to disappear overnight. It won't disappear before some of you get there. But it, some, the climate change has an, has an effect in Alaska more dramatic than what we see down here. I mean, obviously, you know, the fires a, couple, a few years ago that burned out so many homes and God only knows what it did to the wildlife in the mountains. So we see it here, but it is incredibly dramatic up there. And I, I don't understand the science of it all, but climate change, the impact of climate change is happening faster up 
the closer you get to the Arctic Circle. I don't, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a scientist, barely passed biology, remedial biology, by the way. <laughs> so I, don't, I truly don't understand it all, but I do, know, I do know from the data that people have collected that it is fa happening faster up there. So I feel like I'm kind of all jumbled up talking about all this, even though I've got tons of information here. We will not get through it all. Aren't you glad? Um, you know, the, the other interesting thing to me in going, going there was learning a little bit, a tiny little bit, about the Alaska Native people. Their Native people have been treated as badly as ours have down here. Big surprise. And the reason for that tends to be, by and large, whether it's down here in the lower 48 or up in Alaska or in Hawaii or almost any place else around the earth, where they have resources, other people want those resources. And the native people in Alaska, they're made up of, of indigenous groups called, I've got to get my glasses on to read these terms, Inupiat, Yupik, Aleut in the Aleutian Islands, Iyak, Klingit, Haida, Smimshian, and a number of other northern Athabascan cultures. They are identified by language groups. And currently, the Alaska Natives are enrolled in federally recognized Alaska Native tribal entities, who in turn belong to 13 Alaska Native regional corporations who administer land and financial um, claims. But in the mid-18th century, coming over from Siberia by ship, the Russians began to trade with the Alaska Natives especially when they learned the quality of their furs. Otters were very nearly wiped out, brought to extinction because of, of, the, of the hunting and for their furs. In some of the museums they have, they're very interactive and so I actually touched an, an otter pelt and I thought you can feel the reason why those pelts why they were hunted for their pelts. It's like fur that I wouldn't wear fur, not interested in it, it's too warm down here to begin with. But I could see why otter fur was hunted and, and made into, into coats and capes for wealthy people. So the Alaskan natives were taken advantage of for their resources. Of course, it's oil now. And the oil uh, boom we, drove, we took the train through Wasilla. I looked for Sarah Palin to wave to her, but I didn't see her. <laughs> but, sorry, I just had to throw that in. Um, so oil, oil was a, a big thing up there. Timber, certainly. Um, fish, obviously. If you eat fre fresh salmon, wild-caught salmon, you'll, you'll never bother to eat any other kind. It tastes better than anything else I've ever eaten. I, I made a... I made a pledge not to eat farmed salmon ever because I saw the Macaulay fish hatchery as those, the, you know, during the spawning season, the, the fish are going up these ladders built where they come into the rivers and the females get up there and they're then caught. They're full of eggs. They're cut open alive. I mean, they're going to die anyway. I know that, but I'm not. When I saw how they did that, did farm salmon, I just, I just decided it isn't worth it to me. It won't save all those salmon, but I just made a pledge. I love salmon, but I'll eat wild caught and I won't eat farm salmon anymore. The, the vegetarians in the community here would even have a talk with me about the wild caught salmon. 
so I looked, I did some research, and I found some interesting data, probably not astonishing to us, on, on climate change in Alaska. The impacts of climate warming in Alaska are already occurring, clearly. I mean, it's been occurring for a long time. These impacts include coastal erosion increased by storm effects, sea ice retreat, and permafrost melt. So what's happened in the, in the coastal areas of Alaska, whereas sea ice, which used to last a lot longer, that's melt, that melts away sooner now? Warm, things warm up faster? No, it's not there anymore. Well, it's okay. It's not there anymore. Okay. Some of, it's, some of it is. No, it isn't. I didn't know it's this was going to... Could we have the discussion afterwards, perhaps? Thank you. Well, I mean, it's worse than you think. Okay. It's bad, regardless. However, back to what I was just saying, the sea ice protected the coastal regions, and that's what's happened. In fact, they, they are actually evacuating from um, villages. In they're called Shishmaref, Kivalina, and Nutak. And they've already begun evacuation plans. So, so those people are having to move out. And island nations around the world, as sea levels rise because of glacier melt and other effects, and the sea warms, the storms that we're seeing now, I mean, I, I don't consider myself having lived such a long time that I can see this huge perspective. But you look at some of the storms we've had and what climate change has done with the impact, just on the, on the areas that, that we live in and that we know. In 2007, former Governor Sarah Palin actually signed an administrative order officially forming the Alaska Climate Change Subcabinet. Good for her. And the subcabinet is charged with preparing and implementing an Alaska climate change strategy. I don't know. I could, I could look it up, I, I think, and find out a lot more about that. Alaska has seen more forest fires than it ever used to. In fact, native peoples further up in the, in the Arctic for a long time and maybe even now didn't even have a word for forest fires. They had nothing in their language for it because they had never seen it before. And so what they're dealing with now, last year, we were warned right before the trip started to, you know, that we might be flying in with smoke in the air because of the forest fires. I feel fortunate that they got those fires under control before our group came in, and we didn't see any evidence of that. But people were talking about that up there, and had people who had never really had much discussion about it all because it was such, a, such an unusual thing. There is an article, there was an article in the March 2010 issue of Smithsonian Magazine. The author is Bob Rice, Reese maybe. He says, I came to Barrow to learn about ice and climate change from Eskimo elders and hunters and from scientists. For two weeks, I'd been visiting Alaska coastal villages as a guest of the Coast Guard. And what I heard was disturbing. He actually called this article, Barrow, Alaska, Ground Zero for Climate Change. The coastal storms had become so dangerous that some villages lacking the shore ice that was, that they, that was used to protect them 
had to be moved miles inland. In one village, I watched the Army Corps of Engineers build rock walls to shield against fierce waves, and that was something they'd never before had to experience. Fish species from warmer waters were showing up in fishing nets. Insects that no one ever recalled seeing before, such as spruce bark beetles, which kills trees, which we're familiar with down here, because in places like Colorado, I drove up a highway one year to, to Vail, and the whole hillside in the springtime, the, tr the pine trees were all brown because of these bark beetles. So we know that here until fairly recently. They hadn't known that up there. Insects were falling from the sky. There was a proliferation of flies that make caribou sick. Inland, the elders told me, tundra lakes were disappearing and with them drinking water and nesting grounds for millions of migrating birds. River banks without enough ice to shore them up were eroding, filling the waterways with silt. When hunters went out after moose, their boats increasingly ran aground in flats. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, according to a 2004 Arctic Climate Impact Assessment Report. <laughs> Summer ice in the region shrank by nearly 40% between 1978 and 2007. I can't imagine what it is, is now. This is, this is a 2010 article. Winter climates have been several degrees Fahrenheit warmer than a few de decades ago. Every, every winter, you hear reports on the radio. I hear it on NPR periodically. And even on the, on the news out of Tucson, the Tucson feed, when they do the weather, January was the warmest month around the world on average than ever before. And so we feel it here. They see it there in ways that are far more graphic and, and evident than what we even realize. I drive across the river and I look for water levels like that doesn't really tell you anything. But nevertheless, I feel a sense of anxiety when the water when I can't see water in the river. The, in Bisbee, if you go up the highway to the tunnel, on the left-hand side, you, some of you have probably seen the falls that come down when those flat, you know, those places up there fill with water. And this summer, I don't, I don't recall this past monsoon seeing much of anything. There was a little bit coming over. But, so I know that in this grand scheme of things, those things are minute by comparison to what happens in places like Alaska. And when the native people don't even have words for forest fires. On the last day that this author was in Alaska, Richard Glenn, he says, took me to, in a small boat to the junction of Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. Seals popped up in the water. Glenn watched the sky, ready to turn back if the weather grew rough. We chugged through three-foot swells to Point Barrow, the northernmost tip of the North American continent. On the beach, orange ribbons marked an ancient burial ground. After a skeleton was found in 1997, community elders gave permission for Ann Jensen, an anthropologist with the Inupiat Corporation, there's a word in front of that that I can't pronounce, it's a native word, so I'm, not, I'm clearly not native. 
they, she was given permission to dig up the remains of the other 73 bur burials and with help from Barrow High School students move them to Barrow Cemetery. They wanted to move them to higher ground because they were going to lose them and those places are sacred to Native people. Glenn said that although there was no ice visible in, at the moment, it would soon begin to form. He spoke of it with love, the way a Vermont hiker might discuss leaf co color in October or an Iowa farmer goes on about corn. Glenn said that one day a few years back, he'd watched the sea go from liquid to ice in the course of a 12-mile hike. Sometime around October, he said, the waves now lapping against the shore would turn to slush like an unflavored slurpee, he called it. And then as temperatures dropped, the slush would congeal and become rigid. Cold still, colder still, and the ocean would break against itself and form mountains, ranges of ice called plate tectonics on a smaller scale. Snow would cover it, and in spring, the ice would weaken. You can notice it and smell it, he said. The animals know it. Finally, the whales, seals, and ducks would start to come back to Barrow. That's how it always happened. That's the way it is supposed to happen. As the worsening weather closed in, Glenn turned the boat back to shore. He wasn't worried, he said. He would cope with climate change just as he'd coped with other changes he'd seen. We may have to learn some new weather patterns, he said, but we always have. And what struck me as I read, there's a lot of technical stuff in this, but I was struck by the human reflection on climate change and what it does to things that we love. And what I, what I think about people like Rachel Carson, who spent her whole life Present, writing books and presenting to us what would happen if we didn't pay attention. And so, you know, over the years of my life, not as long as some, but I never thought about climate change. I, didn't, I never thought, it never occurred to me, really until I moved to Arizona, what it does. And I spent a few years um, volunteering down at the San Pedro with a group that bans and does research, long years of research now on hummingbirds. And it was interesting, over, even over a three-year period, seeing, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes we'd see some hummingbirds that came there all the time, and another year we might not see that species at all. After the fires in the Huachucas, the birds that always used to be higher up had dropped down for food because they, up there, the fires had burned out a whole lot of what they were used to, to getting it, to getting. So for the native people in Alaska, it means not only their environment that they live in, but their whole way of life can disappear easily. I saw online the other day a picture that absolutely horrified me of a, a photograph that had been taken way up in the Arctic Circle of a polar bear who was a female polar bear who was skin and bones. I'd never seen anything like that. I was fairly horrified. And this wasn't just a hungry bear waiting to hibernate. This is a polar bear who nor ordinarily is huge and fat and down to skin and bones in, in that photograph however poor or good it was, you could actually see her hip bones. And so it brought home to me this, and the um, congregations up there, the EU congregations are very involved in climate justice issues and native people issues, 
because the Native people up there face the same things that our Native people here do. Poverty, suicide, rampant alcoholism, and drug abuse. And, you know, we'll do a good job of destroying this earth if left our own devices. But I, I'm thankful that it became clear to me after I moved to Arizona why it's so important to pay attention to it. So, you know, I keep buckets in my probably kind of pathetic efforts, but I keep buckets in my kitchen and the water that, you know, as opposed to going down the drain, I save it and take it out and pour it on my plants. I've got rain catchment barrels around my house that do a pretty good job almost all year long of watering my shrubs and plants. Don't keep a garden. I'll come over to David's house and admire the garden that you guys have there. But I hope that, that some of you who've never had the opportunity will consider checking out whalecoastak.org. I'll have a video out there that you'll see some of the beautiful sights that we saw. I am so thankful that I got to make this trip. You stay in the homes of UU congregational members. They welcome you, and you're hearing from people who live there exactly what's going on in their communities and the reasons um, to take care of an earth that is very precious and, and limited. You know, we can't keep crapping on and peeing on and ruining the, ruining the, the earth the way we have and expect it to, to last. It isn't going to, and I think Mother Nature can be mighty angry and vengeful if she chooses to. Thank you.